Yesterday was supposed to be my relax day, and it turned into me stressing about needing to relax. (laughs) Stressing about needing to relax? Yeah, I was like, got this one day, I need to relax, and then I'm sitting there and I'm like, I need to do this other stuff, because I've only got so much time. Like, I've got to finish writing, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. I should clean my room, I should do everything, but I'm like... I need to relax. Mm. Yeah. So I spent the day stressing about needing to relax. guys i'm rachel i'm grace welcome back we are miss and misfortune yes we're a paranormal and true crime podcast each week we pick somewhere in the world and base our stories on that place and or surrounding areas so where are we this week (laughs) all right today we are actually in philadelphia (laughs) um i'm not rachel is however um philadelphia is a city in pennsylvania the name means city of brotherly love oh how sweet um, the area was originally settled by native american tribes oh sources oh yeah i have one source it is history.com i'm reading it right now lenape lenape Maybe. hunter gatherers around 8000 bc by the early 1600s dutch english and swedish merchants established trading posts in the Delaware Valley area, and in 1681, Charles II of England granted a charter to William Penn for what would become the Pennsylvania Colony. Hey, hey. wonder where they got Pennsylvania. Penn. Oh my god, that's so smart. Oh, oh my god. Penn arrived in Philadelphia in 1682, and then he signed a peace treaty with an Ape chief, Tamanand, establishing a tradition of tolerance and human rights. That didn't last long, I guess. Oh. Um, I guess not. In 1864, the ship Isabella landed in Philadelphia with hundreds of enslaved Africans. They did not, they were not fans. It resulted in the 1688 Germantown petition against slavery, which is the first organized protest against slavery in the New World. Crazy. All right. Um, Philadelphia soon became the biggest shipbuilding center in the colonies. In 1790, after the Revolutionary War, Philadelphia served as the capital of the United States. The first bank of the United States and the first U.S. Mint were founded in Philadelphia, and the U.S. Constitution was written there in 1787. Woohoo! Yes. Oh, now it's clicking. Yep. The Bell of Liberty. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Revere. William Lloyd Garrison established the American Anti-Slavery Society in Philadelphia, which grew to nearly 250,000 members by 1838. Okay. Local abolitionists uh, adopted the old state house bell as a symbol, renaming it the Liberty Bell. Hey! Ah. Like I said, it finally clicked. In 1876, suffragette Susan B. Anthony delivered the Declaration of the Rights of Women outside Independence Hall. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. 
The city expanded very, very quickly, and during the 1870s, the first U.S. zoo and the Centennial Exhibition Fair opened in Philadelphia. Over 500,000 citizens con- contracted, oh, contracted, wow, they contracted, contracted. Uh, the Spanish flu of oh. 1819 to 1919. That's not good. Yeah. So after World War II, there was a lot of suburbanization and industrial decline, so Philadelphia lost a lot of, like, jobs and population, mm-hmm. and after that, they started new developments, such as the Philadelphia Navy Yard in Center City, and it's helped to revitalize the area, and now they have more than 1.5 million residents. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. That's also where there's the statue of Rocky Balboa. <laughs> hey! Um... There, um, which is at the Philadelphia Art Museum, and you can go visit the Liberty Bell, Eastern State Penitentiary. It's a historic prison with tours and exhibits. But since you can't go visit any of those uh, places, I would suggest looking up some virtual tours because they're everywhere these days. Yes, that. and that's yes. Philadelphia. Yay! Okay, so what is your story? My story this week is the kidnapping of Charlie Ross. Oh, I don't think I know that one. I didn't either. Um, okay. My sources are yalereview.yale.edu, historicmysteries.com, libraries.psu.edu, unsolvedmysteries.fandom.com, wikipedia.org, ushistory.org, and smithsonianmag.com. Oh, and an article titled Searching for Charlie Ross by Thomas Everly from Silver Springs, Maryland. Hmm. So, okay, I picked the story for two reasons. One is because I've never heard of this story, and it is apparently the very first kidnapping of a child for ransom in America. Very first. Yep, very first. And hmm. the kidnapping occurred on my birthday. Oh wow! Yeah, wow. the month. Well, the month and the day, not the year. But <laughs> I don't know why I always think of the Lindbergh baby as being like. It's not the first. Yeah. This one's the first. Cool. All right. So this story, of course, starts with the parents. Christian Ross was a prominent dry goods merchant who lived with his family in the suburbs of Germantown in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. One Saturday afternoon, June 27, 1874, his 5- to 8-year-old son, none of of my sources could agree on how old he was. Okay, but... That's weird. Yeah, like one source said five, two said six, and one source said eight. I'm okay. like, sure, he's he's between the he's he's a, a young child. Eight. <laughs> yes, he's a child below eight. Um, Walter was his name. He came wandering in the house with some candy in his hand. Mm. When he was asked where the candy had come from. He admitted that there was a man in a wagon who had given both he and his four-year-old brother, Charlie, the candy. Uh Uh-oh. Slightly alarmed, he was prompted again, asking if he knew the man and if they had asked for the candy. 
Walter declined both. The man mm. had simply offered the two children candy. Creepy. Yeah. Christian simply thought that someone who really loved kids gave his son his son's candy out of the kindness of their heart. Mm, nope. Well, we would all like to believe it, but we know how humans are. Yep. He gave this no more thought until July 1st, 1874. I'm going to stop repeating the year. We know the year. Until July 1st. Walter and Charlie were playing in the front yard when two men pulled up in a wagon. One man who had a reddish mustache and eyeglasses was the same man who had given the boys candy before. Okay. The other man they did not recognize, but Walter later commented that he was an older man with glasses and a funny-looking monkey nose. They handed the boys candy as per their usual thing over the past couple days. Mm-hmm. And then offered to take the boys to buy some fireworks for the 4th of July. No thanks. I'm too young to know how to how to work a firework. I'm good. Uh, apparently they weren't. Super excited that these men would give them candy and fireworks, the two boys eagerly climbed into the wagon and they took off. Charlie was squeezed in between the two men and Walter was seated on Mr. Monkey Nose's knee. Oh dear. After driving for a bit, they stopped in front of a cigar shop that had a firework display in the front window. Walter was then given 25 cents and was told to go inside to buy the fireworks for he and his brother. Mm. When he emerged a short time later, the men, their wagon, and his little brother were gone. Gone. Uh... Like, we knew this was going to happen just because I said it was the first case. Kidnapping right. right. (laughs) Yeah. While the two children were missing, their parents did not know at all. Mr. Ross was at work until 6 p.m. that evening, and Mrs. Ross was bedridden in Atlanta City and recovering from an illness. What? Who was supposed to be watching the kids? Um, the maid. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, the maid. I forgot, of course, if it's for ransom, they must be rich. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Once Mr. Ross did return home, he noticed that they were not there... However, one of his maids had last seen them playing out on the sidewalk with some friends. Content with this explanation, Mm. Mr. Ross went about his business around the house, assuming that the boys were just somewhere in the neighborhood. Until, that is, tea time, when he went outside to call for them. When he received no response from the boys, he went off in search of them. It was when he spoke to a woman named... Mary Kidder, that the panic finally set in. A few hours earlier, she had seen the two boys playing when they were approached by the two men in the wagon. She saw Walter and Charlie talking to the two men, and the next time she looked out the window, she saw the wagon drive away with the two of them. And she didn't think that was suspicious? She did not, and that was my first thought. Like... These Why two children didn't... just going off with these strange men that I, A, I've never seen before. She seems like the nosy type. So you know she knows the ins and out, outs of that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't Come really on. look into her, but yeah. No, you're right. I I would have been alarmed, but during this time, I guess kids yeah. were allowed to just wander. Yeah. Um. Obviously alarmed by this. 
Plus, it's, it's this is literally the first uh, kidnapping for ransom in the... In America. In America, yep. so... Yep. Um, Mr. Ross rushed to the police station. He was surprised to find Walter walking towards him with a man named Mr. Henry Peacock. Mr. Peacock had found Walter lost and crying in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. Oh, poor buddy. Walter was then left in the care of a relative while Mr. Ross notified the police. However, the police informed him that Charlie was likely taken for a ride by a pair of drunken fools and that he would be home as soon as the two sobered up. What? No. In no world does that make sense. Yeah. Who's going to be like, oh, hey, kid, you just want to ride? I'm drunk. No. (laughs) Well, it was a horse and a wagon, so. (laughs) Still, like, no. Well, I don't know if it was a horse and a wagon. It just said wagon. And other sources said buggy, so I assume Mm -hmm. not an actual car. On July 3rd, it became very obvious that this wasn't happening. After Mr. Ross placed an ad in the paper offering a $300 reward for Charlie's safe return, the family received a very ominous, though crudely written, letter. Hmm. Uh, by the way, $300 then is almost 6800 today. Dang. Yeah, so, I mean, good decent amount. Yeah. In total, the Ross family... I'd kidnap res- a kid for that. Kidding, <laughs> no, I would not. I would not. <laughs> no, you. Now the amount... Mm, 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 hold up. Okay. In total... <laughs> The Ross family received a total of 23 ransom letters, which appeared to have been written by someone with limited literary skills, as all of the letters were entirely misspelled. I mean, entirely. They can't even spell this do- this guy's name right. Ooh. Ross. R-O-S-S. Ross. R-O-S. So, the first letter read... Mr. Ross, keep in mind, I'm going to read this the way they wrote it, not the way it should be read. Oh, okay. Okay, let's do it. Be not uneasy, you son, Shirley Brewster. He all writ. We is got him, and no powers on earth can deliver out of your hand. You will have, no E, two, number two, pay us before you get him from us and pay us big cent too if you why you put the cops hunting for him you is only defeating feet as in foot oh. you own end we is got him fit so no living power can get him from us a live if you regard his lift Put no one to search for him. You money can fetch, F-E-C-H, him out alive and no other existing powers. Don't deceive yourself, C-E-V-E, you self, not even yourself, and think the detectives, they spell detectives right. Oh, wow. That's a tough one, too. Can get him from us. For that is one imposable mm-hmm. here 
or you hear from us in few day. Here, as in here and there, not here. Hey, they did their best. They did their absolute best. Hmm. <sighs> Mr. Ross was urged to not pay the kidnappers because that would set a precedent and encourage others to do the same. He reluctantly agreed and proceeded to buy time for the detectives by corresponding with the kidnappers via personal ads in the newspapers. Let me just tell you, if I had a kid and it was about, and that happened, and then somebody told me not to pay because it sets a precedent, mm-hmm. I'm going to pay. Like, just wait. Yeah. yeah. I mean... I understand why they're saying don't do it because then others would. People um, are going to continue to do it anyway. I don't... Yeah. Once they hear, even if it doesn't work, if people hear about it, they're still going to be like... They'll be like, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, they're going to let me try that. That sounds <laughs> great. Maybe this guy just wasn't smart enough. I'm right. definitely smart enough. I can... I can take this bad idea and improve on it. I mean, clearly, these guys were not smart enough. Git. G-I-T. Hey, that's not smart. That's literacy. It's different. Valid. (laughs) The police then launched a massive manhunt for little Charlie. Every vessel of transportation traveling into or out of the city was searched. Steamships, canal boats, ferries, stagecoaches, wagons everything. They searched high and low for him in railroad depots and public gathering places. Stone quarries, abandoned factories, vacant buildings, camps, brothels, and other abodes of vice. They even implemented a house-to-house search of the entire city, which, you know, shocking because they would not do that today. Then on July 31st, the kidnappers stopped contacting the family. Their last request was for Mr. Ross to take the midnight train to Albany, New York. They instructed that at some point along the journey, they would signal for him to drop $20,000 onto the tracks. By the way, that is $452,000. Eight hundred thirty-three dollars and thirty-three cents. That is a lot. A good freaking sum of money, like enough to go and get a house today, like a really, really nice house. And this guy apparently just has this money laying around. That's um, a lot. Like, yeah, yeah. Once he was to drop the money, the kidnapper said that Charlie would be returned to him within ten hours. Okay. Despite the advice from policemen, Mr. Ross made the trip. However, no signal was ever given. Oh. At this point, the kidnapping had gone from a small local story to a nationwide media sensation. Yeah, of course. The Pinkerton Detective Agency was brought in and more than half a million advertisements showing an image of Charlie were distributed throughout the country. This brought thousands of tips, clues, and suggestions that were just completely, utterly useless to the case. No. A New York City music publisher quickly released the song Bring Back Our Darling. Oh. 
The sheet music for this song, which showed a picture of Charlie at the top, quickly sold thousands of copies. Jeez. Even P.T. Barnum was offering a $10,000 reward for Charlie's safe return. Wow. This, of course, came at a price because we all know how P.T. Barnum likes his money. Well, yeah. Um, Barnum was hoping to exhibit Charlie in his traveling show if the boy were to be found. Of course. His father, however, did negotiate and was like, you can share his likeness, but he's coming home if he's right. Sightings of Charlie flooded in from every corner of the U.S., and it seemed that the entire country was on the lookout for him and his kidnappers. Hmm. However, they continued to elude capture. That is, until early August... When an informant gave the New York City police the names of two possible suspects, William Mosher and Joe Douglas. This tip, coincidentally, came from William's brother, Clinton Mosher. Oh. Running with this, the New York Police Superintendent, George Washington Walling, opened a secret line of negotiation with William Westervelt, who was Mosher's brother-in-law. Oh, wow. There's so many people involved in this. So many. Um, yep, just so many. Westervelt was apparently a disgraced former New York City policeman. Oh. And an offer was made that in exchange for information regarding Mosher and Douglas, Westervelt would, re- would receive his old job back and the $20,000 reward. Um... Following Westervelt's leads, the police tracked the suspects over the winter, but never found them. Of course. Westervelt was apparently the third member of the Gang of Four, which helped to kidnap Charlie. Oh, uh, well, of course. So when they're like, hey, you gotta help us out, he's like, oh, yeah, 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 for sure, mm-hmm. sure, 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 sure. Mm-hmm. But on that note, if it were me, obviously I would turn them in for my job and my money because four hundred fifty yeah, right? something thousand dollars, <laughs> I'm easily sold. <laughs> Especially if you know crime bad. Yes, they finally caught up to the men on December fourteenth. Mosher and Douglas apparently had attempted a burglary in a house on Long Island. Mm-hmm. When a shootout ensued, Mosher was killed instantly. Douglas, however, was mortally wounded. Before his death, he admitted to the crime. The two had kidnapped Charlie. There was no point in lying anymore. When asked where Charlie was, he admitted that only Mosher knew. The police searched the men's boats and every other boat on the Hudson, but no other clues to his whereabouts were found. What? Yep. Two weeks later, the police reluctantly had to end their search. Shit. Yeah. Back to Mr. Westervelt and his involvement in the crime. Mm-hmm. A year later, in September of 1875, Westervelt was convicted of conspiracy to kidnap. Good. He was placed in the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. He was there for a six-year sentence. He denied all involvement in the crime, but once he was released, he apparently vanished until his death in 1890, which is pretty suspicious to me. Yeah. 
like if you're not guilty of this crime that you got arrested for and sent to prison for why did you just disappear after that i mean why didn't you return to your normal life how, how long was he supposed to be in prison six years he served his six-year sentence i don't know yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe he didn't he just didn't want to be known as that guy <laughs> that guy that kidnapped the kid yep. yeah because I'm, I'm sure with how like popular uh, how popular it, it was yeah yeah i understand charlie was never actually found by his family they continued to search until mr ross's death in 1897 mm-hmm. and mr ross actually wrote a best-selling book titled the father's story of charlie ross in 1876 His hopes were that someday Charlie would read the book and recognize some early part of his life. Super sad. Super sweet. Super sad. Sarah Ross, who was the wife of Christian Ross and Charlie's mother, continued the search for Charlie after her husband's death for another 15 years until her death in 1912. At this point, you know, the search had gone on for so long. They've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in this. the their other children are ready for this to be done. In 1924, newspapers ran a story about the case in remem- remembrance of the 50th anniversary of the kidnapping. Walter and his two sisters were receiving letters from men of the appropriate age, claiming to be Charlie, like through this entire time. Shit. In 1934. A 69-year-old man named Gustav Blair of Phoenix, Arizona, petitioned the court to recognize him as Charlie Ross. According to In him, what year? Uh, 1934, so 10 okay. years after the 50th anniversary. According to him, after he was abducted, he lived in a cave until he was eventually adopted by a man who told him that he was Charlie Ross. Mm. Yeah. This claim went uncontested, despite the family's disbelief that this was their brother. Yeah. And the court ruled that Blair was, in fact, Charlie Brewster Ross in March of 1939. However, seeing as the family did not believe that he actually was Charlie, he received no money or property from the parents' estate. Right. Yeah. Blair and his wife then moved to L.A. in hopes of selling his life story to a movie studio. Of course. So, ulterior motive there. That, however, proved unsuccessful. And they then moved to Germantown in Philadelphia and then back to Phoenix in order to live out their lives. Blair continued to claim to be Charlie until his death in 1943 However, his descendants took a DNA test and Ooh. uncovered that he was not Charlie. <gasps> oh, dang. But a man named Nelson Miller. Ooh. Who I guess was also kidnapped. I did not look into that. Okay. So, while poor Charlie was never actually found, because we had the imposter. Right. But while he was never actually found, the fates of the three men involved did deter any act like this from happening again until roughly 1900. So, I mean, good time span without yeah, kidnapping but, um, like that. 
That sucks. Yeah, it does suck. Um, this case is also commonly thought of the reason for the saying, don't take candy from strangers. Yeah. Um, I mean, I heard that a lot. Yep. There has also been a major missing person database named after the case. It is the Charlie Project. Oh, wow. And I did find a website for it. I didn't include it in the sources, though, because I didn't use it as a source. Yeah. Um, but for those who want to know, it is charlieproject.org. It profiles over 13,000 cold cases involving missing people, mainly from the U.S., it doesn't actively investigate the case, but it provides information to the public for missing people who often get neglected by the press and forgotten about. Yeah. So that is my terribly sad unsolved story of the first kidnapping in America for a ransom. Dang. Not the Lindbergh baby, like everyone <laughs> thinks. Yeah. Well... Um, that was good. I liked it. I hated it. I liked it. I definitely hated it. It was a story. Um, yes. All right. So. What is your story? Well, I thought we were in Pittsburgh. So mm. I did a story about 45 minutes away from Pittsburgh in Kecksburg. Hmm. <laughs> This is also why we need to pick a city instead of just a broad state. Well, so I thought that you did. I So I thought you picked Pittsburgh. I don't know why I... <laughs> you, you saw the P and you're like, oh, Pittsburgh. I guess. I don't know. <clears throat> but instead, I'm four hours away from... Um, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. <laughs> from that other pea city. Um, so, I'm doing the Kecksburg UFO. Yay! Yes. By the way, happy episode 30. Happy episode 30. I realized, did you know, in 20 days is going to be our one year anniversary God of me it. asking. I would hope, I hoped that you would forget because... Did you write it down? So, <laughs> let me... May 9th is our one-year anniversary of me asking you if you if wanted you to start a podcast. It, but that I one cannot. right there... What's it say? It says, first anniversary. anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about that today, and I was like, that's probably coming up, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So... Great minds think alike. It's almost been a year. And then we're going to have another anniversary of when we actually released. Halloween. Halloween. Which is a Saturday this year, so don't fuck it up, guys. Yeah, please don't. Let's get over this. (laughs) Mythorses. I'm a little bit blind because I looked right in. um, (laughs) Right in the light. Right in the light. My sources are... MUFON.com MUFON <laughs> Mutual UFO Network Awesome uh, Wikipedia.org www.pabook.libraries.psu.edu PostGazette.com And 
unsolvedmysteries.fandom.com. Ooh. Yes. Okay. So, so originally, this is not the story I was going to do, as Rachel knows. I saw this TikTok by um, B. Fitzgerald about a creature called a squonk, and I loved it so much that I was going to do that, but there just wasn't enough to do a full story on it. So, I'm going to go ahead and tell everybody about that before I do my real story. (laughs) Yay! I'm excited to learn about the squonk. It's like four bullet points. (laughs) Oh, well. Yeah, that's why it couldn't be a whole thing. The squonk is a mythical creature that supposedly lives in the hemlock forests in northern Pennsylvania. Okay. It's said that the creature's skin is loose, wrinkly, and covered with warts. Oh. And from the pictures I saw, it kind of looks like a giant naked mole rat with wrinkles. Oh, I love naked mole rats. It's kind of hard to explain. Um, It hides from humans because it's ashamed of its appearance and spends most of its time weeping. Oh, poor baby. The earliest known written account of squonks comes from a book by William T. Cox called Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods with a few desert and mountain beasts. The only story I could really find on the squonk was that at one point in time, a man named J.P. Wentling was hunting a squonk and actually caught one in a trap, put it in a leather sack to carry it home to show people in his town, but... It fell out, didn't it? Yes and no. Okay. He noticed as he was going back home that the bag was dripping... And it was getting lighter and lighter. And when he looked in the bag, all he saw was a puddle of water, which was actually a puddle of tears. Because apparently, Mm -hmm. the squonk can dissolve into a pool of tears when cornered or captured. I mean, same, but... same. (laughs) But this leads to the scientific name of the squonk being Lacrimocorpus dissolvens, which comes from the Latin words meaning tear body and dissolve and that's the squawk <laughs> and that's it guys that's thank you for story. listening thank today you so much <laughs> wow that was great goodbye best story ever <laughs> so the real story on the evening of december 9th 1965 a large fireball streaked across the sky and was seen by thousands of people in at least six u.s states and in ontario ontario canada There were reports of hot metal and debris falling over Michigan and northern Ohio, and in the Pittsburgh metropolitan area, Pittsburgh, not, um... Not Philadelphia. Philadelphia. I don't know why I can't... (laughs) It's like Philadelphia does not exist. It's all in your mind. Philadelphia is just... It it doesn't. You're right. It doesn't exist. Yeah, it's like Michigan. Yeah. Okay. In the Pittsburgh metropolitan area, there were reports of grass fires and sonic booms. Grass fires and sonic booms. Okay. So eyewitnesses in the small town of Kecksburg, which is about 45 minutes away from Pittsburgh and about four hours away from Philadelphia. Yep. Just in case anyone needed to know that. (laughs) Um, So the eyewitnesses claimed that whatever this fireball was, it crashed in the woods. Mm-hmm. The descriptions of it kind of vary. Some say the fireball was orange with a tail in the end. Others say that it was just, like, green with wisps of yellow, purple, and orange. Mm Mm-hmm. 
there was a boy who lived nearby who said he, um, that he saw the object land. You know what I put instead? Was. What? Uh, he was. That he was the object land. <laughs> yes. So he Ooh, saw the Aren't we land. all the subject, the subject? Yes. The object. We all saw, we are the squonk. Um, we are the squonk. <laughs> We are the squad. Uh, yes, we are. His mother saw blue smoke coming from the crash site and called authorities. She wasn't the only one, though. Uh, a bunch of other people called the police, too, thinking it might have been a plane crash. Oh, no. That's horrible. It wasn't just the police that people called, though. Nevin and Nadine Kalp were playing in their yard when the object flew overhead and crashed into a ravine about half a mile away from their house. Ooh, After okay. the object crashed, Francis Kelp, the their mother, yeah. heard an emergency broadcast on the radio and called in to say that the object appeared to be uh, part of an airplane, not a full airplane, like the broadcast had, had claimed. Mm-hmm. So she's like, you uh, got it you're wrong. wrong. It's right here. I know. I saw it. And then, apparently, she got a call from a man in the U.S. Navy and was told to watch the area of the crash. I guess to call and to call them back. I'm guessing if anything unusual happened. Mm-hmm. But like, how creepy is that when you call the radio and then somebody from the U.S. Navy, Navy calls, calls you, you yeah, and is like that's super creepy. Yeah, I'm gonna need you to keep an eye on that. Just, just let just me know on the down low. Just keep an eye on it. Give us a little <laughs> ring if something happens. Right. So some townspeople, including local volunteer firefighters. Searched for the crash site, and one of the volunteer firefighters said that they found it because there were blue flashing lights coming from the area. Oh. They reported finding an object about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle in the shape of an acorn or, like, like a bell shape. Yeah. I don't know what this is. (laughs) Like a, like a bell shape. (laughs) It's a, it's half a bell. Yeah. And then Post-Gazette reporter Ernie Hoffman who was there that night, said that it wasn't 12 to 10 feet tall, like other people said, but small, the size of, like, two suitcases. Mm-hmm. So, there were some... Yeah. Yeah. Some, uh, supposedly some witnesses claimed that there was writing on the object that resembled Egyptian hieroglyphics in a band around the base of the object. Uh, what, what was the band? Like, um... Like, think of... I can't make a bell shape with my hands. Bell, right, so okay. Like, bell. <laughs> Currently down triangle. The, down at the bottom. Like, there was a band around the bottom. Okay. That had hieroglyphics on it. Oh, okay. It was a band of hieroglyphics. Yeah. I heard it was hieroglyphics, and then there was a band. So I was like... No. A man named Bill Buellbush. Bill Buellbush. Buellbush claims he saw the object turn around in the sky just like it was controlled before crashing into the woods like okay. it came it was going um i think it was coming from the north going south south something west? southeast okay and so it was coming from the northwest going southeast i think okay he saw it come from that direction but then it turned and went like it was going towards a nearby town, only to turn back towards Kecksburg, turned slightly again, and then crashed down into a ravine. So he's saying it crashed on purpose. 
Yeah, like it was like a um, an emergency landing. Okay. So he that drove makes out more to sense than crashing kind of, on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he drove out to investigate and found a ten foot long acorn shaped object smoldering in the woods. At least yeah. they agree it's acorn shaped. Yeah. It was glowing, crackling, and sparking, which scared Bullbush, and he didn't want to get too close to it because, duh. And he heard people coming, so he ran home. Okay. Which, I mean... Why? I don't know. I think because he figured he wasn't supposed to be there. Okay. That, which, I, I mean, paranoia sensation that some people say when they are around UFOs, so... Yeah. True. I kind of get it. So... Francis Kalp, that woman who called the radio station, mm-hmm. state troopers and two unidentified men arrived at her home with a, within an hour of the crash. Wow. And Francis told them where the crash site was, and all spectators and firefighters w- were told to leave the site once military arrived, which, like, all of that within an hour. They got there so fast. I was going to say super fast, yeah. Some witnesses said that the authorities warned them away from the area, because of a risk of radiation from the object. Others were just ordered to leave at gunpoint. <laughs> Which, I mean, yeah. <sighs> okay. Volunteer firefighter James Romansky described the men who told them to leave as mysterious men in trench coats. Oh, not mysterious men in black? Didn't give a specific color. Just men in trench coats. I'm assuming it's black trench coats. Apparently, a local farmhouse owned by Lillian Hayes was taken over by the military because the house overlooked the woods. Okay. Um, so they'd have a better vantage point. And although she claims the officials made several phone calls to unidentified inv- individuals, no calls turned up on her bill. They wiped them clean. They did something. Her son, John, says that he saw two men in full hazmat or radiation suits go down the hill with a lead box, and then they never came back. They were eaten. Man-eating aliens now. No, it explains that later. Okay. Uh, A teenager named Bill Weaver tried to get a good look at the object, but was turned away. He said that he did see four men carrying a large box into the ravine, but it appeared too small to fit the object. Mm Mm-hmm. And some people believe that the military was removing something else. Oh... Whatever they removed, they hauled it away on the back of an army flatbed truck. Mm-hmm. The, okay, so volunteer firemen, including Jim Mays and James Romansky, were f- refused entry to the firehouse as it was being used as a military post. While they were there, James saw a covered object that he believes was the object that fell from the sky. Oh. Uh, like covered yeah. with a sheet covered? Or it just said covered? I don't know. That wasn't very specific. Okay. I'm imagining Um, covered with a sheet or a tarp. Yeah, probably. Lillian Hayes' son, John, uh, believes he also saw the mysterious object leaving in a military convoy. No one knows where the object went to afterwards. Romansky, uh, one of the volunteer firefighters, he has a criminal record. So people are just like, should we believe a guy who's got a criminal record? (laughs) So. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, the Tribune review from nearby Greensburg, Pennsylvania, had a reporter at the scene. They wrote an article titled, 
unidentified flying object falls near Kecksburg, army ropes off area. The article described how the area, uh, the area where the object landed was sealed off on the orders of the U.S. Army so that whatever might have fallen was, you know, yeah, could be inspected. But a later edition of the newspaper stated that the military claims they searched the woods and found absolutely nothing. Mm, sure, because yes. the military isn't known to... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, a local reporter from the radio station... WHJB, who was at the crash site, uh, his name is John Murphy, reported that the military had seized all of his wife's images of the object except one roll of film. What was on that roll? I don't know. Oh. I tried looking for it, but it wasn't... It wasn't, uh, I don't know. yeah. He did make later make a documentary, so it probably ended up in that documentary. Okay. But I didn't have time to watch it, so it didn't... Later. Most... Yeah. Most investigators believe it was taken, uh, the object was taken to a hangar at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, where one witness claims to have seen what appeared to be a small body on a gurney next to it. Oh. Yes. The witness told UFO researcher Stan Gordon that there was an arm hanging down and it had three digits and lizard-like skin. Like rough lizard-like skin. Lizard-like skin. That's okay. all the detail I got. Yeah, the Kecksburg UFO has been hotly debated. People even compare it to the dispute caused by the Roswell crash. Articles about the crash have appeared in Sky and Telescope and the Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. And both articles seem to agree that due to the trajectory of the object, its landing point was likely the northwest part of Lake Erie. Mm-hmm. Not Kecksburg, which is about three hours away from there. So then, why are all these reports coming out of Kecksburg if they're saying it's from three hours away? Well, that's where those articles are saying that it should have been, but there was an error analysis of the study that discredited it. it. Oh, okay. So I'm guessing that those articles were written in an attempt because, you know, the military was like, oh, we didn't find anything here. Yeah. But, in an attempt so. to hide it. Okay. Right. So, what the hell was this thing? Authorities initially ruled out plane crash, missile testing, or satellite debris. Most Meteor. Pe- most people, astronomers included, seem to agree that it was most likely a meteor. Yo! <laughs> However, in December of 2005, NASA released a statement report reporting that experts had examined metallic fragments from the area and determined that they were from Russian satellite Cosmos 96 that re-entered the atmosphere and broke up. Thought they said it wasn't satellite. But their records of their findings were lost in 1990. Oh or my. in the 1990s, yeah. yeah. Which, and like, that could have explained the, according to them, it could have explained the hieroglyphics that were seen on the object. Yeah. Like, it could have actually been Russian. Like, their idea is that, like, a small town in America in the 1960s thought that the townspeople wouldn't have recognized Russian. But yeah. that's a little small-minded, so who knows? I don't know. Yeah. Leslie Keen, an investigative reporter and author who studies UFOs, reportedly sued NASA under the Freedom of Information Act for the records. And on October 26, 2007, NASA agreed to search for the records after being ordered by a court. 
Oh. Yeah. During Thanks, the court. Yeah. <laughs> during the hearing, Steve McConnell, NASA's public liaison officer, testified that two boxes of papers from the time of the Kecksburg incident were missing. Two boxes of paper? Yes. What? So How did two, two boxes, boxes go missing? Well, Jim Oberg, uh, an American space journalist and historian, says that NASA probably doesn't even have the documents because it's likely the Air Force personnel impersonated NASA officials to investigate the site, which apparently was common during the 1960s. Yeah. Oh, 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 that satellite? There was a report in 1991 in which U.S. Space Command concluded that Cosmos 96 crashed in Canada at 3.18 a.m. on December 9th, 1965, the same day, but about 13 hours before the fireball, thought to be the Kecksburg object, was recorded undergoing re-entry at 4.45 p.m. So, it's definitely not that satellite. No. Are the, I was going to say, are they thinking it's like a piece of debris that followed it? I don't know. Okay. But I don't think so, because I think the whole thing came down. In November in 2009, Leslie Keene filed a report on the results of the NASA search. Documents were still missing or reported destroyed. And next to nothing of interest turned up regarding the Kecksburg object. There was a box of fragology files that were destroyed. Fragology? Yeah, they um, relate to recovery and examination of space debris. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Keen said the file, the missing files could be due to a number of reasons, including poor filing system, misplaced records, deliberately concealed records, maybe still yeah. classified stuff, removed by NASA employees and never returned, stuff like that. She did say they've found some interesting tidbits, such as NASA's involvement in collecting space debris and analyzing it. Uh-huh. And interest in sightings of lesser meteor fireballs seen about the same time. So, uh, NASA actually sent out press releases to news agencies about these other fireballs, but NASA had nothing on the fireball that was associated with the Kecksburg case. Yeah. And they didn't issue any stories on it. So, NASA just says this doesn't exist. This is a thing. Okay. Yeah. There was a study done where the broken tree branches where the crash site was supposed to have been, Mm -hmm. they were aged to show what, like, what the path probably was. Um, the ob- object took to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And soil analysis shows damage to the soil around the, s- the time of the supposed crash. But it seemed didn't seem to be large enough to suggest a real crash landing. But if it was a UFO, it could have had a control. It could have, like, been, been controlled, a controlled or, like, crash. dampened the yeah. crash. Yeah. Which, like, kind of seems to line up with the eyewitness account that the UFO was moving in different directions. Mm-hmm. I read so many different theories about this. <laughs> okay. There's a there lot were, of UFO theories. <laughs> there were theories about aliens, of course. Of, of course. course. But theories also ranged from a vehicle that was launched from Johnson Island in the Pacific <laughs> two days earlier as part of America's top secret program for spying on the Soviet Union to, Sh- I swear sure. to God, this is a legit theory that people have, Something called the Nazi Bell. Have you heard of this? It sounds familiar. It's oh, you know, it's just the usual. It's um a time machine built by Nazis and during World War Two. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
Oh, um, Michael Rambacher, a security officer for the Air Force, later claimed to have guarded the object, which arrived on a flatbed truck, mm-hmm. and which he believed was not of this world. Okay, on a flatbed truck? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you can transport a lot consistent. on those things, yeah. Yeah. Stan Gordon, the UFO researcher, said that he's always thought that it was either a very secretive, very advanced man-made space vehicle, or it was extraterrestrial. Those Either are the way. only options. Either way, it's a space vehicle. Either way, it's space. He's looked at all sorts of American and Soviet objects, and nothing ever seemed to fit the description of what he was seeing, what was seen in Kecksburg. Mm-hmm. Owen Eichler, an independent UFO researcher, said he hit the same roadblocks until sometime after 1991, when he discovered newly released government documents about the... General Electric Mark II re-entry vehicle. Mark II re-entry vehicle? Where did that mm-hmm. so, originate? Um, he, he says it was in the nose cone of the Thor, Atlas, and Jupiter rockets in the early 1960s. Okay. And it was upside down, which means that the cone section sort of embedded in the vehicle. Yeah. So, turn that upside down. Bell, Bell. yeah. So... The size and shape are pretty similar, I gotta say. But then would that would that explain the bodies that that one person saw? Body. Body. I don't know if I believe that part. Even the guy that he told that to wasn't really sure that he believed it. Okay. So, Ugh. Screen look share. at this. This is the Kecksburg UFO. Well, it's a replica. Like a, okay. It's a replica. This is that reentry vehicle. Yes. I would say yeah. that's probably it. And it and probably like, got those markings down out. There. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. So John Ventra, the state director of the Mutual UFO Network, agrees with Eichler, and they have some points that kind of make sense. The GE vehicle had four control jets, which would explain the controlled turning that witnesses described. Mm-hmm. One of the metals in construction, in its construction, was copper, which would explain the green flames that people saw. Yeah. Because, you know, when you burn copper, copper flames yeah. are green. Google it. It's a thing. Science. Um, science. Photos of the reentry vehicle seem to show markings that might have seemed foreign to civ- civilian observers, which I don't know. Like, you saw the markings that were on there. I don't think that would look foreign to anybody. It just looks like a bunch of numbers and letters. That's Yeah. They also believed that there was a nuclear or atomic generator in it because of the men in hazmat suits with a lead box and how fast they responded. Yeah. Which... That would make sense. Yeah, how fast they responded, like, yeah. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah, you don't want a radiation leak or anything like that. Um, There's no proof of any of this, though, because, again, the object has not been seen since. Yeah. And these are all theories. Yeah, and there's no real evidence of a UFO at all. Mm-mm. The topic is still hotly debated in Kecksburg, but it's a great tourist attraction. In 2005, a store opened in the town for tourists to get their little acorns and stuff like that. Cute. Um, just like, you know, the Mothman Museum, how they do that. Yep. A replica of the object was mounted in front of the local fire station, and every year they hold a UFO festival where they raise money for the volunteer fire depi- department. Mm-hmm. department. That's good, though. 
So here is a list of shows slash movies slash documentaries that uh, the Kecksburg incident or object, whatever you want to call it, yeah. has been a part of. Yeah. 1990, it was in an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Um, the object, they, the prop they made for this episode to be the, the object uh, is yeah. actually the one that's in front of the fire station. They let them keep awesome. it. That's awesome. In 2003, the Sci-Fi Channel aired a two-hour documentary called The New Roswell, Kecksburg Exposed. Kecksburg Exposed. Kecksburg Exposed. In 2008, there was an episode of Discovery Channel's Nazi UFO Conspiracy, where they talk about the Nazi bell. In 2009, it was on the History Channel's UFO Hunters, and again in uh, 2011, it was on History Channel's Ancient Aliens. Of course. And again, on in History Channel's In Search of Aliens. Thank you, History Channel. They're, they're going for it. They are. In 2019, producer-director Cody Knotts premiered his film Kecksburg, based on the events at Kecksburg. And filmmaker Andrew Patterson has said that the plot of his 2019 film, The Vast of Night, was partially based on the Kecksburg incident. Of course it was. Yeah. And, uh, that's my story. Oh my gosh. Okay, now, I do agree with that that one guy. It's probably that vehicle that you showed. It did look really, really similar. And, like, I can just imagine when it heats up, the metal probably... Yeah. Yeah. So... But yeah. I, I just, the fucking Nazi time machine thing, I, I heard that and I was like, what? Where even, I mean, where even did this theory surface, Nazi time machine? Um, It came from a Polish uh, author who wrote something like it in a book. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll have, just look it up on Wikipedia. It's okay. wild. Okay. Yeah. No, it's also I'll got another to. name, so. I'm sure. Yeah. Alright, well, um, if you liked that, even if you didn't, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Myths and Misfortunes. That's right, you don't have a choice. Yeah, you don't have a choice. Whether you want to or not, you're going to follow us. Or on Twitter at Myths Misfortune. Or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop up. You can also send us an email to MythsandMisfortunes at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Our music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. Please Look. go follow them, too. Yes. They deserve it. They do. They do a they're lot the, of hard work. They're the best. And please, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Please. Please. We're begging you. Please, I don't want to beg. No, we don't need to beg. I'm not All a right. beggar. All right. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Oh, yeah. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Thanks. Bye.